And I'll read Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocents as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, not a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Belzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? You may be seated. Father God, we ask that you open up our eyes, our minds, and our hearts, Lord, to receive your word today. Lord, let us reflect the image of Jesus in our lives even more after hearing uh, this text, Father, and applying it. God, we love you, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. When I was a missionary in East Asia, I was always excited to host a new group of summer interns. These interns were typically college students who came to live with our team for the summer, and they came to learn about global missions and to experience kind of what we experienced on a daily level. Now, for many, the summer brought a host of new experiences, new foods, They ate fish eyes, they had cow stomachs, they had pig brains, they had the whole gamma of new foods. They heard new languages, and they experienced an entirely different culture than any of them had ever seen before. Even crossing the street with no passenger right-of-way was a new experience to most of them. Now, at the end of the summer, we'd throw one last hoopla and listen as the interns shared their biggest takeaways. And without fail, the interns talked about how unique it was to meet Christians who follow Jesus even when facing all kinds of risk. They would speak of the friends they met who participated in illegal Bible studies, underground churches, and showed a greater commitment to evangelism than any of the free peoples in the United States that they knew. These were people who were willing to make great sacrifices for their faith in Jesus. Some had been pushed away by their families. Some had been threatened by the police. Some had been marginalized in their jobs because of their faith. As long as they called themselves Christians, none of them would have significant careers or make decent money. They'd always be reduced to some kind of below level of poverty because they refused to come into the party line. Now, all this was, according to the interns, unique. At the end of this final celebration, it was my turn to share my thoughts. I shared with them that what they had experienced that summer 
With all this strangeness, all this newness, and all this seeing Christians who are willing to follow Jesus, even if it means not being able to to rise up and to be promoted in their business, that all this was not all that unique or abnormal. In fact, perhaps for the very first time in their lives, they had experienced normal Christianity. The vast record of history And the majority of Christians around the world would describe normal Christianity in a completely different way than most Americans. To a 21st century American, normal Christianity is gathering comfortably in church buildings, having politicians in the government who advocate for our freedoms, and hardly ever coming across challengers who seek to limit our gospel message. I mean, just think of it. We are still coming off the days when it was still, just a few decades ago, socially advantageous to call oneself a Christian. Who wanted a lawyer who didn't go to church? Who wanted a car mechanic who didn't believe the Bible? And who would vote for a president who did not in some way claim, even if he had never opened his Bible, that he was a born-again Christian? To advance in Western society for A long time, one needed to have at least a nominal commitment to Jesus. But to a 21st century Chinese believer, to a 21st century Indian Christian converted from Hinduism, to a Nigerian converted from Islam, to a Russian church planter, to a Venezuelan who's converted from Catholicism, normal Christianity typically means cultural marginalization, governmental persecution, and familial abandonment. Now, I'm going to say something that may offend you. And I'll set up a desk out in the foyer later that says, prove me wrong. <laughs> this strange irony is that these believers in all these other countries that we feel sorry for understand what normal Christianity looks like better than we do. They have lived as normal disciples of Jesus for almost two millennia, whereas we are the ones who have lived in a very abnormal and unique time of prosperity and freedom from persecution. I don't want you to hear me wrong. I feel like prosperity and freedom from persecution are great things. They're just disposable things. They're things that we don't need necessarily in order to walk our Christian life. They are, it is prosperity and freedom from persecution that is unique and fleeting. That's what's abnormal in this world. To experience what we have experienced for 244 years as the American experiment has been truly unique, abnormal, and we must expect someday to go away because it is abnormal for Christians to live and the kind of peace, tranquility, and prosperity that we have experienced in our days. As we will see from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 to verse 25, suffering as a disciple is par for the course. Becoming a disciple is an endeavor that is fraught with all kinds of dangers and all sorts of opposition. 
As the American culture continues to plunge headlong into the waters of secularism, this belief system that that deems the authority of God as irrelevant, the more we see our society doing that, the more American Christians need to understand that we have great hardships ahead. We will be marginalized. Our political advocates will be few, if any, and we may even have to pay a price for our convictions. And somehow we are foolishly clinging to the thought that that'll never happen to us. We think those days are strange, bizarre. But before you think of that predicament as strange, unique, or bizarre, you, you have to ask the question. The biblical description of discipleship in Matthew begs this question. What did you expect when you signed up to follow Jesus? Our Savior faced brutal hostility in the world. And yet we expect something different. Jesus calls us, as we see, to suffer like him. And we must endure. Now before we begin looking at Jesus' words about persecution, it's important to remember where we are in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 10, 16-25 belongs to Jesus' second sermon, which most scholars typically call the missional discourse. In this discourse, Jesus is giving his disciples some final instructions before initially sending them out. We can think of this as an early rehearsal of the Great Commission. Now why is that detail important? I think it's important because most of us, when we think of persecution, we think of some end-time topic, right? When we think about Americans facing persecution, how many of us start thinking about things like the Antichrist and the soon-coming return of Jesus, or we start talking about millennialism, or we start talking about things like this as if it's some far-flung fantasy that belongs in a movie, This text that talks about persecution is not an eschatological text. Meaning, Jesus is not telling us what might one day happen. Jesus is telling us what will happen in the normal Christian life. What is it like to be a normal believer in normal days, in normal times? This is what might be shocking to most of you. Normalcy in the Christian life is hardship, suffering, leaving behind father, mother, brother, sister to follow Jesus, becoming like Jesus who had no uh, head, no pillow to put his head upon, to take up one's cross. I mean, you, you hear this all through scriptures, right? To take up one's cross, one's, one's own execution daily. To follow Jesus. And yet somehow we think of that as abnormal and strange and never going to happen to us. And yet when it begins to happen, we are utterly shocked. So I just want to begin this morning just by asking you, what did you expect in following Jesus? You may not like what you're going to hear about persecution and suffering. I humbly call you to evaluate your own heart. And to ask why Jesus wouldn't be worth it. Your commitment to Jesus may be only in times of prosperity. But as Jesus has told so many people in the past, the rich young ruler, he is not here to guarantee your prosperity. He is here to see the message of the gospel spread to all the nations of the earth. 
by any means possible. Jesus is going to make several points about persecution. First, he's going to give us a basic premise, just a very simple statement. He sends out his disciples as sheep among wolves. It's going to be hard to make that soft and gentle and nice in a, in a good picture. So he, just, he sends us out as disciples who are sheep among wolves. From there, he begins to talk about the sovereign purpose behind persecution. He talks about the promise that is given to believers who are persecuted. And then he talks about the need for perseverance. And then he gives us the peace of knowing that our Savior has gone before us into the fires of persecution. So in all through this text, Jesus is showing us what can be expected as we follow him. Jesus gives his disciples this very simple premise for their mission. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus' words, I am sending, expresses his explicit authority to send us out, to send out his people. He can send us where he wills. He can send us because he is the sovereign Lord. He sends out his disciples in the same way Yahweh sent out Old Testament prophets. He doesn't just simply save us and set us back. He saves us and then sends us out. That is what Jesus does. Save and send out. There are no no, uh, backseat Christians, no bench-sitting Christians. There are Christians who are sent out. That is what Jesus does. In all of his authority, he sends us out. Now, how does he send us out? Not as conquering conquistadors to enslave the world. Not as intimidating browbeaters. He sends us out as sheep among wolves. To the ancient world, the metaphor could not be more ridiculous. And I'll be honest, I'm kind of glad for some of the the disputes that have happened where sheep has finally become a bad term again, a bad metaphor. Because for a long time, we've liked the metaphor sheep. And now none of us want to be sheep. And yet Jesus says, hey, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to be a sheep. And so we kind of feel the, the burden of, ooh, we're sheep? That's the image that you're going to pick for us? I mean, sheep are prey to wolves. They're prey to desert lions and bears and raiders. And sometimes sheep are so witless that they can walk into a flooded desert wadi and drown themselves. That's the idea of sheep. So sending sheep among wolves at first glance is equivalent to sending them to their own death. In all of his authority, I mean, this is the sovereign Son of God who, through whom all things were made and for whom all things exist. And what is the image that he decides to depict Christians as? I mean, this is the man who made, who made elephants. This is the man who made great white sharks. I mean, it would be awesome if we would have heard, I'm seeing you out as great white sharks among minnows. But he doesn't say that in all of his sovereignty. He says, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Jesus chooses to send the weak into the teeth of the strong. Consider how this approach to discipleship so often differs from our own. Jesus' wisdom far surpasses ours. And I'll be honest with you. If we lived in this day and time, if we were completely honest with ourselves, we would think this is complete and utter foolishness. We would have sent out armies of battle-hardened warriors to face wolves. Our strategy would focus on strength and skill. We would muster the masses, count the ranks, recruit uh, high-stakes givers. We would enlist political powerhouses and mobilize only the best. 
And yet, Jesus shows that his mission is not contingent on human strength. He doesn't need any of those things. He doesn't need the masses. He doesn't need the ranks. He doesn't need the political powerhouses. Jesus can work through sheep. Sheep. My friends, the mascot of Christian discipleship is a sheep. I played football. I'm sure some of you did too. It's a big thing in Oklahoma as well as it is in Texas. And man, we, we judged people based on their mascots, right? I remember we were, fl- we were facing the Haskell Haymakers. I mean, these were the big corn-fed dudes in southern Oklahoma that would eat. And I mean, like, their right-hand tackle, their right tackle is like as big as the front end of my truck, Okay. And so it's like, whoo, haymakers, they're going to make hay out of us. They're going to bail us up, right? You just, you come in and it's intimidating. We met the lions and we met all kinds. We met the sharks and we were the panthers. And then we played the dragonflies. (laughs) And we came Watson on to the field. Boy, if there's any, we may not have been able to beat the haymakers. And the iron heads really kicked our tails. But these dragonflies, (laughs) They can't even pick a mascot for themselves. That's intimidating. They beat us 47 to 28. (laughs) My friends, the mascot of Christian discipleship is a sheep. It's laughable. It's foolish. And yet, Jesus uses this epitome of foolishness to show and display his wisdom. It's worth asking, is Jesus being sadistic about our suffering? Is he being pessimistic about his own mission? Why would Jesus choose to send out his disciples in this way? Sending out his disciples as sheep, when viewed against the backdrop against, uh, of the rest of the biblical narrative, is a display of God's strength. As the rest of Scripture shows, God uses the weak to confound the strong. These are all biblical terms and biblical passages if you want to look them up yourself. If you disagree with this philosophy, you're against Scripture's philosophy. God uses the weak to confound the strong, the foolish to confound the wise. He uses prey to confound predators, sheep to confound wolves. And what's even more important is our commission as disciples mirrors Jesus' coming into the world. I mean, this was the Lion of Judah, spoken of all the way back in Judah's day, in, in Jacob's day, when Jacob said over his son that there would be a lion of Judah, none would dare to arouse him, to, to wake him up because he'd pounce on him. And this is the mighty conquering king. And what was the first thing said about him when he was seen by John the Baptist? Behold the lion of Judah, right? That's what he said, right? No. Behold the lamb of God. The lion of Judah came as a lamb of God. Though he was the Davidic king and savior of the world, he came with no royal procession or pomp. He came with no conventions or trying to get people to vote for him or, or came with no party line. He didn't really stick with the Pharisees, didn't really stick with the Sadducees. He just came and he was just a carpenter. He came without majesty and was despised by men. And nevertheless, it was through his rejection that he accomplished the world's redemption. Now, climaxing God's use of the weak and the foolish, Jesus defeated the one who had the power of death by doing what? By dying. 
on a cross by being defeated. The cross was God's strength cloaked in weakness and was gloriously uncloaked only after the resurrection. In the same way, Jesus compares his disciples to sheep, and yet it would be through these very sheep that the entire world, all nations, governments, would tremble under the message of the gospel. It would be through sheep. God chooses to cloak his strength and weakness so that no one receives glory but him. Sending disciples out of sheep to reach the world with the gospel glorifies not the sheep, but the shepherd. That's what's impressive about all this. It's not just that we are strong sheep and look at those little sheep, man, can they go? No, it's the impressiveness of our Savior. Sheep guarded by their Savior can accomplish God's purposes. Sheep by themselves among wolves are lamb chops. Jesus uses this metaphor so that it will highlight his sufficiency, his strength, his wisdom, not ours. We do not need uh, things that we say that we need. Our insistence on political, material, physical strength undermines the glory of our strong shepherd. It's not that these things are bad. If we have a political strongman, if we have material strength or physical strength, those things in and of themselves may not be evil, but our insistence that we need them undermines the sufficiency of Jesus in and of himself. Our mission of reaching the world has never been contingent on human strength of any form. If you want proof, just look at China. China has no political advocates in power. And yet millions and millions and millions of dollars are spent every year trying to eradicate this pest that Xi Jinping is deathly afraid of. Deathly afraid of. Jesus goes on to show that being a weak sheep does not equate to living carelessly. Disciples are to be wise as serpents. They're to be innocent as doves. In the ancient world, serpents were considered to be among the craftiest of beasts. And even in a modern day encounter, unless you're John Banks, if you see one of these creatures, uh, you know how cunning it is, right? Whoever just jumps headlong to grab a snake. We know Kyle Orell for sure is not going in at all. The rest of us, if we go in, we're going in with a stick or something to grab the thing with because we know that you get a snake backed into a corner that is the most dangerous when you think you've got it. (laughs) This thing knows how to get out of tight corners. It can make impossibly tiny holes in the escape hatch. It can camouflage itself and be hidden in plain sight. Now, all that may seem strange to us, but to a church planter in a closed and hostile country, it is a lifestyle. How to blend in, how to utilize platforms, how to hide Bibles, how to be able to distribute the gospel message in new ways, how to strategize to reach an entire city when the rest of the government is against the gospel message. It is a lifestyle for the majority of Christians in the world, though it's really strange to us. This craftiness is to be matched with innocence. I mean, the people of the world are always cunning, right? They're constantly trying to find ways to get ahead. Con artists scam, hackers fish, adulterers sneak around, corruptors cover up, plotters plot, and so on. And it doesn't matter how many times I block the spam risk on my phone, they find a new way to still call me, right? It's still irritating, right? Every time they call me, I block it. 
Two days later, I get a new call, and I'm sitting there going, hello? Is this really someone important? And I sit there, and I'm mad because I wasted my time. They are creative. They are cunning. They are constantly hatching up schemes for evil purposes. But Christians, we are crafty for righteous ends. We are cunning. We are smart. We are seeking to educate ourselves and to, and to be people who know how to maneuver in this world for the sake of righteous ends. We don't do it with sinful motivations. We hatch plots that launch missionaries into unreached territories. We educate ourselves about various topics in order to build conversational bridges to the gospel. We roll with the punches so that we can keep doing ministry even in a pandemic. We maneuver ourselves to make the greatest impact in our community, righteous acts for righteous ends so that they can see our righteous Savior. So all that's the basic premise. It's the, it's the most important point in this text. Jesus gives his disciples the image of discipleship being weak like sheep, cunning like serpents, and innocence like doves. And my question is, does this match your understanding of discipleship? Are you trying to be as strong as a wolf in and of yourself? Are you seeking to depend on human strength Are you looking to all these other ways that you're trying to maneuver the kingdom of God when God's plan for us has forever been to be weak and dependent upon Him? True disciples refuse to depend on anyone, to depend on our own strength, to depend on any kind of political party, to depend on any kind of material wealth, to depend on any kind of economic success, to depend on any kind of freedom from the state to promulgate the gospel. We know the creator of the universe. We have all we need. Jesus seems to speak about discipleship moving on in this text as necessarily involving hardship. Whenever sheep are sent among wolves, things are about to get intense, okay? Uh, when, when we were riding through uh, the grasslands that, were, um, that had herds of horses and sheep and everything, there were Tibetans there that, uh, that ran what we called the Chinese Disneyland. And so we'd ride on these horses. Tibetans would lead us through the mountains. And I remember this sheep just darting past a horse. And next thing you know, this wild Chinese dog going after it. Just, whew, I mean, it was a tense scene. I mean, the dog jumps and tries to bite and tries to tear down and tries to break down. And these shepherds are screaming and waving and throwing rocks and all this kind of stuff. Things get tense when sheep are among wolves. Naturally so. However, when it comes to persecution, even this tension falls under God's sovereignty. Even this tension, even this persecution falls under God's sovereignty. We have such an amazing God that He is even in control of when we are executed for our faith, of when we are fined for our faith, of when Chinese are sent off to the labor mines for their faith. God is in sovereign control of that. He has a purpose in it. In verses 17 through 18, Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over and flog, uh, to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. The statement, beware of men, is filled with all kinds of cautions. The same word used in Acts 20, 28, when Paul tells the elders to be alert about the incoming wolves. So Jesus sees a very real danger in men. 
And I, I think it's worth seeing that sometimes we kind of underestimate the danger that men have. We, we trust in our favorite politicians. We trust in our favorite people and our favorite uh, celebrities and all these things. And we, under, we underestimate just how dangerous doing that is. If sinful men, even religious men, could slaughter the Son of God, then what could men do to us? Pharisees seem like fairly decent people. I'm telling you, if you were a Jew in the second century, you wanted to be aligned with the Pharisees. They were right. They were conservative. They believed in the whole counsel of God's word. They believed in the resurrection. They were awaiting the Messiah. They did not like to placate with the Romans. Those were the people you wanted to be like. That was the party you wanted to sign up with. And yet even they slaughtered the Son of God. Think about that. You know, I've done a lot of hiking, and I'm grateful for a church that lets me to do a lot of hiking. It's what keeps me here for a long time so I can go get my sanity and come back and keep going. But I've done a lot of hiking, and one of the rules that I'm reminded of every time I go to a new place is never to turn your back on a bear. I mean, I see it every, in, wherever there's bear country, there's always signs and rules that tell you what to do in case you encounter a bear. It's also because of bears, I never hike with headphones on. You know, I, I passed a guy walking with headphones, I'm like, you're dumb. Because you can't hear anything around you. I mean, there are gigantic moose, meese, whatever you call them, standing in the bush ready to attack. And there's bears. And so it's one of the reasons I never hike with headphones in my ears. I keep bear spray in my pack. I almost shot myself with it once. Um, and I keep a knife on my hip. Now, let's just be honest. The chances of me having a face-off with a black bear in the Colorado mountains are slim. But such encounters are not unheard of. The safest thing to do in bear country is to pay attention, to stay alert, to keep your eyes and ears open, to kind of make a little clapping noise as you're coming around the corner because you don't want to startle a bear. Even if I think the chances of meeting a hostile bear on the trail are near to none... Bears are not to be trusted. They are unpredictable. They are dangerous. They are wild. And therefore, it's important for every hiker to take precautions. Complacency in the mountains can lead to a deadly effect. In the same way, Jesus warns that to become complacent while hiking in the world can lead to deadly effects. Mankind is dangerous and unpredictable. The world hates God and growls against his will. To cozy up comfortably in the world of men is like trying to pet a wild bear. Don't be shocked when your hand is in in its mouth. It's dangerous, it's wild, it's unpredictable. We do this far more than we care to admit. We become complacent about what's around us. We are often naive about the good-heartedness of humanity. We see people as good intention, though misguided, instead of the way that Scripture describes all of us. We are the ones who, even in the thoughts of our hearts from the days of our youth, are bent only towards evil. Read Romans 3 in the description of mankind, and it's not a great picture of mankind. Our depravity goes down deep. We're not just some harmless, misguided, mistaken creatures. We are antagonistic, snake-like bears in the woods, ready to destroy people. We get angry. 
We get hateful. We fantasize beating up people that we don't like. So there's a healthy caution here. It's not to be confused with complete separation, right? I enjoy the woods. I go out into the woods even knowing there be bears there. But we stay alert. We stay mindful. We keep our eyes open because sinful bears live here. History has proven Jesus' warning to be spot on. The world's hatred towards God is, a manifest, is manifested through his hatred towards people. Jesus says, they will deliver or hand you over. It's the same thing that they do to Jesus. And according to Acts chapter 3, verse 13, they hand Jesus over to the governors, to the kings, in order for him to be crucified. But just as God had a sovereign hand in his son being handed over and crucified, God has a sovereign hand in our being handed over and our being given up. Jesus says this about being handed over. That when we are given over to the courts, to the synagogues, the governors, the kings, he says it will be for my sake. Why? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. In his sovereignty, God turns persecution into a platform for the gospel. Man hopes to use persecution to eradicate the name of Christ. God flips their evil plans on its head, and it ends up being the best way that we get the name of Jesus out there. The more the world presses in, the more the world tries to break, the more the world adds that pressure on us, the more the gospel disperses throughout all the earth. We see this strange phenomenon in Acts. Peter and John are arrested. The disciples are compelled to pray for boldness. And that results in a greater proclamation of the truth. They take Stephen. They stone him. And Stephen's death leads to the scattering of the church in Samaria and the rest of the world. Paul was handed over to governors and kings. And people were telling him to shut his mouth. And yet the end result was a personal appointment with Caesar in Rome. I have friends who last night, our last night, met in house churches with PSB officers waiting to catch whoever's coming inside. And it's frustrating for a PSB officer. I had several friends in the PSB when I was there. And they said, it just seems like every time we catch one or two, there are like four more. That's divine design. God uses persecution as a platform what they seek to make a ruin for the gospel becomes one of the most redemptive tools in the hands of God. So my friends, just simply hear this. We may be in for hard days ahead. You have very limited power to stop them. I just want to be honest with you. You may disagree with me about that. But you do have very limited power to stop what is normal Christianity. The world will hate you regardless of who wins in November. Being a disciple for Jesus will still be hard in January. COVID may come to an end, but when you talk about Jesus, there are people that are still going to seek to shut you down. And yet, we can find comfort in knowing that God uses that for a sovereign purpose of bringing people to himself. And he doesn't leave us on our, on our own. In the very next section, 
We, he, Jesus gives us this promise of help in those times. I don't know if you're like me, but there have been times, I remember in times past, when we fascinated over the PSV knocking on our door, or we fascinated about uh, what would it be like to be in severe trouble for the gospel. And I was left wondering, will I do the right thing? Will I waffle? Will I flake? Will, how do I know I'll be strong enough? I can't deal with a stubbed toe. What makes me think I could deal with an interrogation, or I can deal with jail time, or deal with a fine? Well, Jesus answers that. We know the stakes are high. We know that we're not people known for our greatest courage. So what happens when we face hardship? When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So Jesus' premise, sheep among wolves, implied... That we, would be, that we would need to depend on God. This statement absolutely, explicitly calls for dependence. Our faithfulness in suffering is not due to some prepared excellence. You don't get ready for persecution by standing in front of the mirror and pretending and giving this well-thought-through speech. It's not made by self-made resolve. Oh, I'll be fine. Peter did that, didn't he? I'll never deny you, Lord. And what happened? It doesn't come from any of that. In the likelihood of standing before someone who absolutely hates your Jesus, it will not be you who faithfully declares the gospel. It doesn't matter if it's a family member, if it's a neighbor or a co-worker who hates Jesus. If you successfully get out a faithful presentation of the gospel in that time, it is only because your God has allowed it to be so and He has given the words. I mean, we have all talked about how People in this church in the middle of suffering were able to preach the gospel through suffering. Where do we think that came from? Not from them. And it won't come from us. God does not abandon us in the midst of our suffering. Here's the reality. He cares more about your faithful proclamation than you do. He cares more about the way you speak about him than you do. If that time comes, you need not fear Trust the Lord. Now, for those who don't know, the world's opposition is intense. It reaches down to the most intimate of relationships. Brothers betray brothers, parents betray their children, and children betray betray their parents. And sometimes this leads to somebody's arrest, somebody's being fined, or somebody going to death. Now, to us as Westerners, it seems entirely foreign and strange We have rarely, if ever, seen that kind of hardship on our soil in 244 years of being a nation. But you talk to a young former Hindu who was once threatened to be burned alive by his grandfather. In fact, we're going to be watching a video next week about a a young man who converted, an Indian man who converted from Hinduism. And he went back for the first time to see his family. His grandfather had the stake dug and was ready to burn him alive on it. That's normal to him. Christian converts being arrested and executed by their Islamic fathers. Chinese believers being outed by their once friendly neighbors. Such severe hostility, which we think is some, only some kind of end time that belongs in movies. That, you know, it, when that happens, be looking for 666 and all that kind of stuff. My friends, I hate to tell you, just scale it back a little bit. That's just normal. Jesus calls those things the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, it's not even really the end yet. 
This is just normal Christian life. It's been the norm for Christians for two millennia. And he says, with, Jesus says with no qualifications, you will be hated for my namesake. Hated, the strongest detestation because of who our God is. They don't mind what we do. They don't mind when we do good things, but they mind severely when we begin talking about the exclusivity of the gospel. My friends, read the writing on the wall. Secularism and postmodernity is falling like a curtain on this country. We must persevere. I'll be honest with you. The boogeyman behind the closet is not just communist ideology. It's not socialism. It's this mindset to throw off the chains of God. That's the enemy that our nation is facing. But my friends, do we really do much good when we think that we can force those chains back on them? The best way for us to live is to endure. The best way for us to live in this country that seeks to throw off the, the, the binding will of God is to submit ourselves in repentance and to sola scriptura, to the word alone, and to worship and pray and to gather when we can gather. That's our best protest that we can give. It's to be normal, enduring, faithful Christians. What should you do if November doesn't go your way? Be a normal believer? Do what you've always done? Well, for some of you, do better than you've always done? I've spoken with a lot of you. If November goes your way, let's just say one way or the other, if November goes your way and religious freedom is secured for the next four years, I expect every one of you to sign up for the outreach team. If we care about religious liberty that much, as we say that we are, then why aren't we sharing the gospel now when we have it? Seems bizarre to me. My friends, we just endure a normal Christian life. We just continue plotting in a normal Christian life, and that is how the world is won. We must persevere. Jesus goes so far to say that the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who continues in their faith. It seems like a strong statement, but is absolutely essential because it highlights how prized Jesus is. The one who turns from Jesus is not saved. The one who clings to Jesus is. The one who loves Jesus above all else. Jesus said that. If anyone loves his father, mother, brother, sister more than me, they're not worthy of me. Jesus said that. Now the question is, is what do you prize above all else? Would you be willing to cling to him or would your faith be shattered? The moment it became inconvenient. Our resolve to follow Jesus must be such that we will continue to follow him. Jesus says, when you're persecuted in one time, flee to the next, and then the next, and the next, and the next. He's not telling us to be cowardly there. He's simply saying, don't give up. Don't give in. He's telling us to keep going. When the pressure of the world's wine press increases, let the sweet wine of the gospel overflow and fill places that it has never gone before. And one day, our perseverance will receive its final reward. Because Jesus says, For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's, a, there's an implicit hope there. One day Jesus is going to come back. Hardship for believers is going to be over. Hostility is going to be gone. 
just as Jesus was vindicated at his resurrection, will be vindicated when the Son of Man splits the sky. So we endure faithfully, knowing that that day is coming, knowing that our bridegroom is on the way, knowing that our Savior, our champion is, champion is coming, and we persevere. My friends, hardship is coming, but so is your Savior. So is your Lord. Now, before we end, Jesus points to the pattern of persecution. He points to his own suffering. He says this, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? He uses a lesser to greater principle. He just, again, this is, he could have easily just said, what do you expect? If they crucified Jesus, if they betrayed him, arrested him, marched him to Caiaphas' house, put up a mock trial with false accusations, put him up before Pilate, harassed Pilate to crucify him, and then beat him with sticks, told him to prophesy who would hit him next, put a cross on his back, made him march up Golgotha, nailed him to that cross, and then threw his body hastily in a tomb. What more do you expect them to do to you? That was our master, our teacher. And we disciples somehow go, they're going to do what to us? They're trying to take away religious liberties? What did you expect? They may one day try to fine you. I do believe that we live in days that someday the church budget may need to include paying the fine for your pastor for speaking the truth. But it's worth it. Budget it. (laughs) Keep telling the truth. There may be a day that some of us may face jail time. Now, all you anxious Nancys, I hate to tell you, but your church staff will probably be the first ones to do so. So just cool your jets. God is sovereign. Christ is worth it. And the most encouragement, the greatest encouragement we have is that Jesus, though bloodied and mistreated and killed, was raised again. And if we become like our master and teacher, we might be bloodied, we might be killed, we might be buried but we will be raised again. It's enough for the disciple disciple to become like his teacher. It is enough. That's what I want. I mean, all these people who live comfortably and die have no hope of resurrection, but those who follow the Son of Man and Jesus down his path, they suffer, they die, and boom, they're resurrected. That's enough. My friends, as much as we protest against facing hardship in the world, sometimes our protest betrays the fact that we do not have a strong faith in the one who can help us endure. I'm not saying we as Americans lie down, that we don't vote, that we don't speak out against oppression. We should. I said it clearly that way before. I've never told anyone they shouldn't do that. I do want you to move beyond that, though, to see that you don't need it. If your political candidate doesn't win and everything goes to hell in a handbasket, you've been saved from hell already. 
what are you afraid of? Charles Simeon, who often spoke of the great high priest who made the sacrifice already, the the captain who sailed through the storm, the lamb who was bled and raised again. He was one time once asked by a young minister how he was able to endure all this persecution. He had lived for, I think it was almost 50 years as this minister at this church and was hated by people outside in England and hated by his own church members to the point that there was one time they tried to lock him out of the church and to keep him from preaching. So he set up a pulpit out in the front of the church and whoever wanted to hear him would go sit out there and listen. And so here's what he answered when he was asked how he could endure such suffering. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in remembrance that our holy head, Jesus, has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Jesus, our great head, went into death first. He was buried into the grave first, and he was the first one out. Everything you feel now is just a mere momentary pricking. Let's patiently endure, knowing that one day we will be completely out of the thorn bush. Let's pray. Father God, I do pray that this sermon was encouraging for some, convicting for others. And as always, Father, that we will stand in boldness and faith and trust in you, knowing that we have no need for anything else but Jesus. We have no other authority but him and his word. We stand here, Lord, for your glory only, knowing that it is by just our faith, not our works, and by your grace, or that we have been saved from condemnation. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't trust you, maybe they've trusted all kinds of other things, I pray first and foremost they'll repent to turn and let go of the things they trust in and the trust in Jesus alone. God, we love you, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.